Before we get started, please join with me in prayer. Father God, please encourage us today uh, as, you, as we hear your word. As we hear of David's victory, please turn our hearts to Jesus uh, that we might love and trust him even more. Amen. We can feel pretty defeated as Christians sometimes, defeated by sin. We've got this picture of the Christian life that we should just be unstoppable, like we're sprinting through life and sin just comes and bounces off us. We're just unstoppable. But the reality is often far, far from that. Instead of sprinting effortlessly through life, uh, sin can be like this ball and chain. It, it trips us over and it just holds us back. We know that we should be patient, generous and forgiving, yet anger boils up and we lose it at our kids or at our colleagues or just when we're driving the car. We feel defeated. We know that we should, we should use our mouths to encourage and build others up. And yet, once again, we let slip that morsel of gossip or we use our tongue like a blade to cut someone down. We feel defeated. We feel defeated when we visit that website again. We feel defeated by our pride, our greed, our envy, our lack of compassion. And we're not people who often talk like this, but sometimes when we're feeling defeated, sometimes in the back of our mind, we start to wonder, well, maybe this is the devil's doing. Maybe Satan is holding us back. We feel defeated, and yet we have this inkling that we shouldn't feel defeated. And so we start feeling guilty for feeling defeated by sin and the devil. What hope have we got? You can imagine uh, that the Jewish people of 450 BC felt much the same way. They were a defeated people. They weren't feeling defeated because of sin, though I'm sure some of them felt that way as well. Their defeat was as a nation. They were this tiny, insignificant province in the vast, powerful Persian Empire. They were surrounded by hostile nations. And this was a problem for Israel because Israel wasn't just any old nation. As we read last week in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, Israel was God's nation. God had made promises to Israel and to her great king David. God had promised that they would be secure in their land. But that was hardly the case in 450 BC when Chronicles was written. Sure, they had this tiny little bit of land... But it was nothing like the territory held by David and Solomon and it was nothing like the land promised to Abraham. And God had promised that he would give David's son an eternal kingdom. But back then Israel had no king. They knew that, that if they put a crown on someone's head then the Persians would just come and wallop them. And David had promised, sorry, and God had promised David a name like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Maybe David had that kind of reputation when he was around, but now, in 450 BC, no one knew his name anymore. It was into this context uh, that 1 Chronicles, chapter 18 to 20, was written. Israel's hopes had been smashed. It was a time when Israel felt surrounded 
and defeated by her enemies. And the bit of the Bible we're looking at today was written to encourage them. It was written to say, look, when God puts his chosen king on the throne, when God's Messiah comes, Messiah just means king, when God's Messiah comes, well, victory will come with him. And the way that Chronicles does this is by telling stories of victory. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 18 to 20 is basically a list of David's victories. At the beginning of chapter 18, David is surrounded by his enemies. But in chapters 18 through 20, David wins battle after battle. There is no one who can stand against him. Uh, First up, David took on the Philistines and he beat them. Open up your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 18 verse 1. Uh, On the skinny Bibles, you'll find it on page 298. On the robust Bibles, 654. So chapter 18 and verse 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. Uh, Next, David took on the Moabites and he beat them. Verse 2, David also defeated the Moabites and they became subject to him and brought tribute. David took on Hadadezer, king of Zobah, and he beat him. Verse 3, moreover, David fought Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, when he went to establish his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a 100 of the chariot horses. He also defeated the Arameans who came to help Hadadezer. Verse 5, when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. And the next victory, well, it's not a military victory, it's a defeat, sorry, it's a forfeit Uh, A king called Tu, who was king of Hamath, Uh, this king heard about David's great victories and he just gave up. He paid tribute to David, which just means that he gave David heaps of money in exchange for not having to fight David in battle. He just gave up. Have a look at verse 9. Then Tu, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He sent his son, Hadoram, to King David to greet him and to congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with too. Hadoram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold he had taken from all these nations, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek. And in the final victory, uh, David's commanding officer, Abishai, took on the Edomites and he beat them. Verse 12. Abishai, son of Zariah, struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. Left, right and centre, David was defeating Israel's enemies. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Arameans, the Edomites are all defeated. And why did David have these victories? Is it because he had a brilliant military mind? Was it because he had impressive military technology? Well, verse 13 tells us that David's victories came from God. 
God gave David victory because that's what God had promised to do for him. This is what the second half of verse 13 says. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. In chapter 18, we read about a whole truckload of David's victories. Uh, David, sorry, God was with David and he gave him victory against a whole bunch of nations. In chapter 19, we just look at one victory, David's victory over the, uh, over the Ammonites. And it starts off with things looking pretty good. The Ammonites aren't enemies with Israel. In fact, David and the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, well, they're friends. And when Nahash dies, David sends a bunch of people to express his sympathy with the Ammonites. But Nahash's son, Hanan, is suspicious. Maybe he's heard about David's many victories, and so he thinks, what if David is just spying on our land? What if David is just trying to work out how to conquer us as well? And so Hanan does something pretty stupid. He arrests those guys that David has sent and he humiliates them. He shaves off their beards, which is just a way of saying to these, these men, you're not men, you're just boys. And he sends them home without any pants on. It was pretty humiliating. It doesn't seem to be the smartest way to treat the messengers of a king who has just won a whole load of battles. Let's have a look at it. We'll pick up this event halfway through chapter 19 and verse 2. 19 and verse 2. When David's men came to Hanun in the, sorry, Hanun in the land of the Ammonites to express sympathy to him, the Ammonite noble said to Hanun, Do you think David is honouring your father by sending men to express sympathy? Haven't his men come to you to explore and spy out the country and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved them, cut off their garments in the middle of the buttocks and sent them away. Well, David was furious when he heard about this. And the Ammonites quickly worked out that treating David's messengers that way wasn't the smartest thing to do. And so they they got together, they rustled together all the cash that they could find and they went out and they hired the Aramean army to help fight um, for them. And so now the Israelites are in deep, deep trouble. Two nations, 32,000 chariots are against them and they were fighting a big battle. They were getting ready to fight a big battle. In fact, they weren't just fighting one battle but two big battles. In front of them was the Ammonite army. Behind them was the Aramean army. Everything was against them. And so Joab, the commander of the army, split the army into two forces and gave his troops a stirring speech. Let's read that speech starting from chapter 19 and verse 10. Verse 10. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and they were deployed against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to rescue me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will rescue you. But be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. So Joab had a plan. He put the best soldiers against the strongest army and he had a plan of what to do if things went badly. 
But more than a plan, he knew that he was the commander of David's army, and David was God's king. God had promised to protect Israel, and so Joab knew that he could trust God as he fought, not just for the nation of Israel, but for God. The outcome of this battle uh, was another great victory for God's king. The Arameans, the stronger army, is defeated. They run back to their homes, and the weaker army the Ammonites, well, when they see that the the army that they hired, the mercenaries who they'd paid, had run away, well, they decided to run away as well, to run back to their city. Have a look from verse 14. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they too fled before his brother Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab went back to Jerusalem. But that's not the end of the matter. The Arameans, they were the stronger army, they regrouped, they pulled themselves together, they brought in some allies and they prepared to take on Israel again. But David got wind of their plans. He heard that they were preparing to take on Israel again and so he went out and he took them on and once again he thrashed them. Uh, Listen to David's victory starting from verse 16. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they sent messengers and had Arameans brought from beyond the river with Shopak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel and crossed the Jordan. He advanced against them and formed his battle lines opposite them. David formed his lines to meet the Arameans in battle and they fought against him. But they fled before Israel. And David killed 7,000 of their, of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also killed Shopak, the commander of the air army. Now that's the Arameans dealt with. They wanted to pick a fight with God's king and we can see where that left them. But this chapter is, is about the Ammonites. And last we heard of them, they're hiding back in their capital city, Rabbah, But when the seasons changed, in springtime, David sent his army back to Rabbah to finish off what the Ammonites had started. David's army, uh, led by Joab, laid siege to the city, attacked the city and won. And the result for the Ammonites was that they became labourers working for Israel. They started off this sorry encounter as friends, as allies with David. But now, because of their foolishness, they are his slaves. Have a look with me from chapter 20 and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, Joab led out the armed forces. He laid waste the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. Joab attacked Rabbah and left it in ruins. David took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was found to be a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them uh, to labour with saws and with iron picks and axes. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. You'd think that after all these battles, uh, that things would have calmed down a bit for David and Israel. So far he's defeated, 
Philistines, Moabites, Arameans, Edomites and Ammonites. But the next thing you know, we're back at the start again. The Philistines, who we last met in chapter 18, verse 1, have reared their big, ugly heads again. This time, David's men don't take on the whole Philistine army, but rather a bunch of giants, warriors who came from the same town as Goliath. And in fact, one of them was Goliath's brother. David's mighty men took them on, and all of them were destroyed by David's mighty men. Have a look at the summary of this in chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 20 and verse 8. Verse 8, these were the descendants of Rapha in Gath. Gath's the town where Goliath came from. And they fell at the hands of David and his men. Well, this history must have been an encouragement for the Israelites living under Persian rule. In these stories of David's victory, they're to remember that God has promised to send his Messiah. That's what chapter 17 said. And when the Messiah comes well, then he's going to put all their enemies in their place. And the Israelites waited and waited for God's Messiah. And we know that the person they were waiting for was Jesus. Jesus is the promised son of David. He's the one who's been given a great name, which is above every other name. He is God's promised Messiah. Uh, we use the word Christ, we call him Christ, which is just the Greek way of saying the Jewish word Messiah. But the thing is, when I read the Gospels, I don't read much about the battles that Jesus has won. I don't read about giants being defeated by mighty men or about huge numbers of chariots fleeing when they see Jesus. Instead, what we see is a man who is executed by his enemies, a man who is crucified by powerful people. Jesus' great victory came at his execution. The cross is where Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious like David is, but in precisely the opposite way to how David was. David's victory was on the battlefield. Jesus' victory was on the cross. David's victory was to slaughter armies and to lay siege to cities. Jesus' victory is to have nails pierce his skin and to die on a cross. What kind of victory is that? It was the victory that his people needed. It was the victory that you and I need. The enemies that we need to be freed from are not the Philistines, the Ammonites or the Persians. The, the enemies that we need to be freed from are sin and the devil. In his death on the cross, Jesus defeated those enemies. On the cross, Jesus is the victorious Messiah. We see this in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, which is on your outline. Have a look there at how Christ's victory is described. Verse 13, 
we, uh, God has made us alive with Christ. Because of Jesus, death is no longer the end. We have eternal life with God. Our new life starts now. Verse 13 again, our sins are forgiven. Sin can no longer separate us from God. Verse 14, the written code which stood against us, God's law which condemned us, has been taken away. It was nailed to the cross and no longer stands against us. And verse 15, Jesus has defeated Satan. Uh, the words powers and authorities that are in this verse are another way of talking about the devil and demonic forces. They have been absolutely and completely defeated by Jesus. Have a read with me of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In his death on the cross, Jesus is our victorious Messiah. In his death, Jesus is our conquering king. He has defeated our worst enemies. He has defeated sin and the devil. These enemies no longer have the last word on us. No longer do these enemies separate us from God. But what does this victory mean for you and I on the ground today? Well, there's lots of things that can be said about Jesus' victory. I'm just going to mention two ways that Jesus' victory helps us when we feel defeated by sin. The first is that even when we feel defeated by sin, Jesus' victory means that sin can never separate us from God. If our sins are forgiven, if the written code which, which opposed us has been taken away, then there is no longer anything that can separate us from God if Jesus is our King. On the cross, fully and completely, your sins were forgiven. Jesus has won the victory against sin, so you don't have to. If you're trusting in Jesus for forgiveness, then there's no need to feel defeated because Jesus has won the battle. You cannot be alienated from God because of your sin. Now, if you're not trusting in Jesus, if Jesus isn't your Messiah or your King, then you have every reason to feel defeated by your sin. And so this is a good reason to trust in Jesus and to name him as your king. That's the first way that Jesus' victory helps us. We cannot be separated from God. The second way that Jesus' victory helps us is that because our sins are forgiven and because the devil has been defeated and because we have new life in Jesus then we don't have to run the race with that ball and chain of sin. Sometimes when we face temptation again, and we know that we've failed to flee temptation in the past, well, our, our past sin feels like it traps us. It's like, I failed before, I may as well fail again. 
I feel defeated. I may as well go ahead and be defeated. But Jesus' victory changes that. The victory that he has won means the forgiveness of sins. Our past sin no longer weighs us down. Our sins are forgiven. They're not a ball and chain. And so what Jesus' victory means is that the next time we face temptation, it doesn't matter if we've, we've sinned that way a thousand, sorry, sinned in the same way a thousand times before. We face this temptation with Jesus' victory. And that means that with the enabling of his Holy Spirit, we can have courage to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. So often we feel defeated by our enemy. We feel defeated by sin. But just like for Israel in 1000 BC and 450 BC, it's the victory of God's Messiah that gives us hope. God gave David victory over all his enemies and that encouraged both the people living in his day as well as the Israelites living under Persian rule. And David's victory reminds us of Jesus' even better victory. Jesus' victory is on the cross where he defeated sin and the devil. That's the victory that we need. So let's praise God for the victory he has won in Jesus. Please pray with me. Father God, you know our struggle uh, with sin and you know that there are times it feels like sin has gotten the better of us. You know that we need Jesus and so we thank you that you sent Jesus to win the battle for us. Please help us to trust in Jesus and to look for him uh, as we continue to live in this, in this world full of temptation and sin. Amen.